What a, what a week, what a week we've been through as a, as a world. And uh, so when we get near the end of the message, we will spend some time praying about all the things that's happening around us. And, and so it just, I, I believe we'll be ready for that when the time comes. Um, yeah, this Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. So Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. And we'll gather in this room and uh, we'll gather online as well. And we'll uh, have an Ash Wednesday service, which is focused around reflection and repentance. And uh, we will, this week, I'll be in my backyard with the, the palm branches from uh, last year's Palm Sunday and reduce those branches to ashes. And uh, Scott Bear and I will use those ashes uh, to remind us that we are uh, but temporary in this earthly tent. And uh, ashes represent... Uh, the concept of repentance reminds us that we will return to dust uh, when we are at the end of this journey. And so I hope that you will be here and uh, that you'll get a chance to participate, whether you're here or online. Um, th- these ashes, when I burn them every year, it s- smells a lot like another Colorado plant that is... Um, and I know my neighbors know, know that a pastor lives in my house, and I'm sure they think, man, once a year, life just gets the best of that boy. Uh, so I try to tell that story as often as I can about the ashes from Palm Sunday, not that story. But the... And so we, we hope that you'll, you'll be here and be a part of it. Uh, we're in this just two weeks to prepare for Lent, really, that's what we're trying to do. Um, often Lent kind of sneaks up on us and, and we don't get a chance to be thoughtful about how we might engage in Lent, but I hope you're being thoughtful about how you might do that, whether you're going to add something to your life or take something away. And, and uh, during the Lent season, again, we'll kick that off next Sunday, we're going to walk through the passion or the, the last week of Jesus's life, the passion section of John. And it starts with uh, John chapter 12, and we'll go through the portions of John that have to do with his last week and his crucifixion. And I, I love the way John tells the story. And so we'll do that week to week through Lent, leading right up to Easter. But to help us kind of get our minds around that, we want to give you some context about the Gospel of John. And we want to give you a frame for how to read it and even how to understand it. And so we started with this, this idea of everything and everyone from chapter 1, verse 4. In fact, let's just say this together, okay? Everybody with me. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. And this is centered in the very beginning of the Gospel of John. When John begins to tell the birth story, he doesn't talk about, uh, you know, the, the shepherds. He doesn't talk about, you know, the manger and all those things that we associate with the birth story. He uses this incredible soaring language that gives us a, a cosmological understanding of who God is and what he's up to and that Jesus always was and always will be, that nothing was created without Jesus. And then in the middle of it is this one verse that says he gives life to everyone everything, light to everyone. And, and it's absolutely, I mean, I, I, when, I read, when I read the prologue of John, I, I can just be sort of caught up into a different place and uh, it's inspiring to me most of the time. But sometimes I read it and I think John, John had his head in the clouds. I mean, he isn't paying attention to the world around him. It, it can feel like at times that when John gives us this big picture of life to everything and light to everyone that he didn't know some of the people I know. That he wasn't reading the headlines I was reading, that he wasn't in a world that was filled with the same problems that I'm in. 
And at times, if I'm being honest, it's very difficult to believe. It's very difficult to read the prologue and think that it's rooted in any kind of reality at all. It, it feels that way because there is a, a big gap, a big distance disparity between what is, what we're experiencing in the world, and what will be. And if you grew up in the church, you know what will be. You've read the stories, you know the verses, you, you've read the end of the book, okay, you know the you know the whole deal. You know that all things ultimately work together for the good and you've maybe claimed that verse over some mess in your life. You know that God is making all things new, that the kingdom is here right now, Jesus said it. I mean, if you know scripture and you've been around church much at all, you know what will be. And you know that God is faithful, that his promises are true, that he is reconciling all things and all people to himself. And it's absolutely true what John writes, that the light and life has been given to everyone and everything. And at the same time, even if you know all of those truths about what will be, you also live in a world that's full of a whole lot of what is. And the what is is... That's thick right now. And it is hard to understand how we can live in a world that is what is, but there's a process that's somehow happening somewhere in the midst of all of this that is driving us toward what will be. And sometimes the what is is very, very personal. A phone call you get, a, a test result, a, a fractured relationship. And sometimes it's, sometimes what is is global. Sometimes it is so pervasive that it is just right in front of us as looming large. And it causes us to have questions. And the questions are big ones. And they're ones that we don't maybe talk about over lunch, but they're ones that wake us up in the middle of the night. And if we have good friends that we know how to talk about faith with, then they come up in those conversations. And those questions are things like, this gap and what it makes me feel, it makes me wonder, is, 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 God, is God good? Is he, is he sovereign? Is he really in control? I mean, that's what the scriptures tell me, but it feels like that's not really what's going on right now. Is, is he actually working history toward a final culmination of what will be? Does that just mean it's got to get a lot worse before it gets better? Is God trustworthy? All of these questions that we have, can I... Maybe the biggest question, can I, can I put my hope in what will be? Can I put my hope there? Because if I feel like some days I'm pinning my hope to some fiction or some idea or some pie in the sky theology, then I'm going to really be upset when this whole thing's over. And all of those questions in this space between what is and what will be, it can really create a lot of tension, stress, and uncertainty. And maybe you feel that. Maybe you sense it. And maybe you are finding it difficult to deal with all of it. We don't like this uh, dissonance. It's hard for us. Uh, it creates uh, conflict in us. I don't know if it does for you, but for me, I, I mean, I know, I know the story. I know the end. I know how it's all going to conclude. What is makes it feel like that's so far away, I'm not even sure it's the same deal altogether. And so when we deal with this dissonance and this, uh, this tension and stress and uncertainty, 
We have all kinds of strategies to manage that in our life, lots of strategies. Some of us, we, we dig in and learn. We're learners, and so we read as much as we can about world events or global things, or we try to stay in contact with whoever, and we do what we can to kind of smush these together. Some of us, we, we put our head in the sands and act like, you know what, I'm just going to think about what will be. I'm not going to think about what is. Anybody, anybody in the room a head in the sand person? Let me see your hands. Okay. Three of you. I don't believe you. <laughs> So I think there's a few more. Uh, some of us, we, we try to numb it. We try to try find ways to numb it, entertainment and all sorts of things. That My latest numbing technique is actually pretty effective. I don't know if you found crumble cookie or not. Um, we discovered crumble cookie. It's, it's up. I, mean, I shouldn't even tell you. If you want it, you need to go search for it. Um, I'm not going to make it easy for you to find it. How many of you found it? You found the crumble cookie store? They have these cookies. They're just, oh, I just, I forget my name when I'm eating one. That's how good they are. I don't even know my name. And, and we walked in the other day, Donna and I did, and uh, we saw the, the, the lumps of dough that make one cookie, one cookie. And they look like, I mean, they're big. I'm saying big. And we saw the nutritional, you know, how they have to put nutritional information on all that stuff so you can know what an awful person you are, I think is why they do that. And we saw, we saw one that said, this cookie we were going to eat, it was a peanut butter cookie. It had Reese's Pieces all in it. Uh, I know, right? And, and we saw it, and it said that it was, it was 100 calories. That's what it said. And I thought, I know that's not true, but I'm totally going to believe that's true. I'm totally going to go to the bank on that. It's 100 calories. And then we looked a little deeper. It was per serving. Each cookie has six servings. <laughs> this cookie that we ate in the car, by the way, didn't even make it home, has 600 calories. And when I'm eating a cookie like that, the gap between what is and what will be is, is a little smaller. It's a little bit smaller. Maybe it is for you too. And the tension remains. And when it's there and we're asking those questions, is God good? Is, is he trustworthy? Um, is he sovereign? Is he really in control? Then things begin to creep in, like, like doubt, disbelief, a little bit of fear, a little bit of hopelessness. And those things that begin to sneak in can sometimes find footing in our, our doubts. And it may not be the global situation that's got us twisted up. Maybe for you, it's another thing in your family, your deal, your story. There's a name for all of that. Uh, psychologists, have, psychiatrists, they've named it over the years. And this feeling that we're describing and this gap between what is and what will be um, the best name that they have given it is this thing called existential dread. Now, you may not know what that is, and you're not going to thank me for telling you, but um, existential dread, it, you can see the word exists right there in the word. It is this, ultimately, it's this fear of death is what it is. It's a fear of our ultimate demise. And we all have this because, you know, we, we know the stories of everybody that has gone before us, and we know the truth that nobody gets out alive, so to speak. And existential dread is this understanding that this is a part of our deal. It's a part of our story. So ultimately, it's, it's identified as the, the fear of our own death. But it's come to mean a, a, a lot broader perspective than just fear of death. It, it really has anything to do with the stuff that begins to mess with our, our peace, 
our contentment or our circumstances. So when you get a new boss at work and you think things are going to be all jumbled up and you may not have what you had before and you won't have the position you had and somebody else is going to get promoted ahead of you. Your boss before, he knew all your story and what you were good at and blah, blah, blah. That's existential dread. When you have kids and you begin to fear for their safety and that happens the moment they start, be, start to move off the blanket and you begin to fear for their safety and their existence for a parent, that's existential dread. It is the collective term for the, the psychological, emotional, spiritual feeling that we have wondering about our future and our hope. And it looms large. And it is deeply personal. And what's unique about existential dread is every phase of your life, my life, has its own unique existential dread. It's different for you than it is for me, and it's going to change for you throughout your life. Donna and I, throughout the pandemic, we've watched parents struggle with all of the issues with, uh, you know, non-traditional learning and difficulties with masks and the, the school board fracas and everything that's involved with all of it. Our boys are older, and they're out of school. And how many times have Donna and I said, I'm so glad we're not raising kids right now. How many of you said that through the pandemic? Let me see your hands. How many of you said that? And then next to you is a parent who's raising a kid right now. And so they're facing the existential dread that you're glad you don't have to face anymore. It's just different for every season of your life. But we face it nonetheless all the same. This past week, I'm, I'm of an age where my parents are aging. And so this past week, I was in Kentucky. Don and I go back. We make trips to check on family and be with siblings and cousins and all kinds of people. And most everybody lives in central Kentucky right there. And over the last several weeks, they've had some health issues, my mom and dad. And now my mom is in a skilled nursing facility as of about a week ago. And dad's memory is fading. They made a great team when they were at home together, you know. Uh, dad had the body and mom had the mind. So they made up a person. But now they're, now they're miles apart. And so I go visit mom and at the nursing home. And I mean, it's not an awful place, but you wouldn't want to live there. And I see the, the people there, and her roommate, and the food they're putting in front of her. And Nurses are worn out and they're doing their best to be kind and thoughtful. And I see mom and I just come from the house, dad, and his memory and dementia's ramping up, he's losing his memory. And when I have to explain to him the same thing about five times in a half hour period, there's part of me that as I'm leaving Kentucky, I'm thinking, I think I just saw my future. That's existential dread. And we experience it in a, a thousand different ways. And this is what exists in what sits between what is and what will be. That's what's there. The, the tension, the anxiety, the uncertainty. You feel it and I feel it. And we feel it in a thousand different ways. It's there. Now, when John gives us this overarching light to everyone, life to everyone picture, and we feel like he just doesn't get it, he does get it. In fact, the Gospel of John is all about existential dread. He understands it better than you and I would even hope to in the scope of our lifetime. 
And he gives us this overarching frame of, of this incredible soaring language because he knows, look, if you're going to deal with it on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and get through what you need to get through, and I know your stories, I know what some of you are having to get through every day, then you're going to need an understanding of the overarching picture of what God is up to and that what is and what will be. This gap is here for now, but it won't remain forever. And God wants you to be a part, your calling in life is to be a part of bringing those two things together. And he's gonna tell us the entire story, but he starts with the big picture, like anybody who's writing a story knows to do. Let me give you a a quick overview of John. This will take two or three minutes, I promise. Gospel of John, it has 21 chapters, and you've read a good chunk of chapter one this week and and last week, this prologue. But then he's going to call the disciples, and he gets his his buddies together, and they start doing their stuff. And then John tells the story of the first miracle. It's only in John, the very first miracle Jesus ever does. And you would think it would be something, you know, just cataclysmic and, you know, a big deal and something for everybody to see. It's not. It's not at all. Jesus shows up at a wedding, and they run out of wine. And so he makes more wine. And it's not a mistake or just sort of an oops or, hey, I better throw this in there. John has just a few things he wants to get across, and he tells us the story that this wedding is very important and the party has already started. It's true. It's true. It has already started. And then next week for Lent, for the weeks leading up to Easter after this week, we'll jump into what's called the Passion section of John. It's, it's really the last week of Jesus' life. And we'll go through it week to week. But right in the middle is this section, chapters 3 through 11. It's nine chapters. And John's going to take this prologue, this, this soaring, inspiring picture of who God is cosmologically, what he's up to, who Jesus is, how he's always been and always will be, and he's going to give it names. And he's going to teach us theology, as all good theology can be taught, through relationships and people with names and faces and conversations that are real. And these people are just like me, and they're just like you. They face existential dread on the daily, and they're not sure what to do with it. And the gap between what is and what will be, this theology is what you need to get up and love people the way God wants us to love them, and love him too, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, every day of the week. Here's what John says at the very end of his gospel. This is the very last verse of the gospel of John. He says this, Jesus did many other things as well, And just to help you understand that, he says this, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. That's quite a statement. You know, I like the hyperbole. I love the the grand language that he closes the book with because he's saying, in other words, he's saying this, the stuff that I've included in these 21 chapters, I have handpicked on purpose so that you would get a glimpse of who God is and what it's like to walk with him every day. I could have picked many other things, John is saying, many other stories I could have told you. There's names you'll never know because they're not recorded in the Gospels. The ones I picked, pay close attention to them. And so in chapters 3 through 11, 
we meet some people, most of them unique to the Gospel of John, not all of them, but he begins to tell us some stories. And in these stories, in these chapters, you'll see what John means when he says, life and light was given to everyone and everything. If you read these chapters, you'll meet a man who was brought to the very pinnacle of leadership in the Jewish patriarchy. And he, for a lifetime, pursued it. And now he finds himself at the center of Jewish leadership. You'll find a man, conversely, that finds himself at the center of the Roman government. This, this idea that Jesus is interacting with the two most disparate people in leadership and in patriarchal world, in the same few chapters, John does this on purpose because light and life was given to everyone and everything. Jesus steps into a world that is unbelievably tense and difficult. Rome occupies Jerusalem and all of Palestine. The Jewish people are confused. They feel like God is absent, like he's left them to die, like he's paying no attention to their plight. And you would think that even after the life of Jesus and all the things that he does and the death and the burial and the resurrection, that things would surely get better after the church is established, but it doesn't, it gets worse. It gets way worse. The reign of Nero represents the worst persecution of Christians that we've ever known. And in the middle of all of that, a couple decades after the life of Jesus, John begins to put down his stories. And he writes about existential dread in every one of these stories. You're going to meet Jewish people, Gentile people, and some that are represented by the half-breeds of the Samaritans that, well, they weren't accepted anywhere. You're going to read about the wealthy and the poor. Some of these stories, just in these stories, he meets others in these chapters, but these were the main characters. You're going to meet some people that Jesus has just met and crossed paths with shortly. And then you're going to meet some folks that are his deep and dearest friends and cause him to deal with unimaginable grief. These are the the stories that are going to unfold in these chapters. And this is just for you to dig into. You're going to read about the oranges of sin for some of these people and how we get stuck. Some of you are stuck in this room. And he's going to give an incredible personal path to all of these people. Now, as I've already said, we're into chapter 12 next week. So, I mean, we got a ways to go, right? No, we'll just touch base, huh? just barely, barely do a brush by on a few of these stories. But this is my hope, that, that you at least have some awareness of your own existential dread and that it drives you to a place where you think, Man, I want to dig in a little bit. I mean, I hope that last week and this week is a bit like a restaurant review or something, you know what I mean? Where I've just described a steak so, so filling, so meaningful, so nourishing that you can't wait to get there yourself and make your own reservation and sit down and, and have some yourself. Because the stories that Jesus interacts with the stories that John will tell through these chapters will help you deal with the gap between what is right now 
and the promises of scripture and how distant and far they feel. And in every one of them, you will see that John is telling us about a sovereign God, a good God, a God that's worthy of your trust, a God that you can walk with, a God that will never leave you alone, that will always be with you, even through the most unimaginable circumstances. And so here's a, here's a glimpse, okay? First person we meet in John chapter three is Nicodemus. He, he's this incredible religious leader, Jewish man. And he has found himself at the pinnacle of Jewish leadership and authority in a world that is dominated by Jewish males. Now, Rome is supplanted and he's finding himself maybe not as important as he used to be, but he believes that Jews, the Jewish people, Israel will prevail and he's at the center of it. In fact, he's so much at the center of it that he comes and finds Jesus in the middle of the night to chat with him because he didn't want to see any, he, he didn't want any of his friends to see him going to see this no-name obscure rabbi. And so he interacts with Jesus and throws him a bone and says, you know, we see, we, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish ruling council, uh, all of us important Jewish males, we see that you are a good man and you're a good teacher and that clearly you have come from God. And so he throws Jesus a bone and Jesus just kind of kicks the bone away and says, let's talk. And so he gives him right out of the gate exactly what he needs. Immediately, Jesus says to him, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you are what? Born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To the most auspicious, prestigious, learned, mature authoritative Jewish leader in his midst, Jesus says, unless you begin again, unless you start from the beginning, you don't have any chance. Some of us are just like Nicodemus. If you've been in church for most of your life, you're, you might be a lot like Nicodemus. If I showed you those little stories, you know, the characterized by the, you know, the woman at the well or what have you. If, if you looked up on the screen and you thought, well, I know that story, I know that story, I know that story, there's a good chance you're Nicodemus. I mean, I'm not saying you are, I'm saying you ought to ponder it. Because Nicodemus had learned so much, he had been so indoctrinated by church culture and Jewish life and all the things that made him exactly what he believed God found to be important that he could not see his way clear to understanding who God actually was. And if you are as thick as I am in church history, there's a good chance that's you. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus, and maybe to me, and maybe to you, if you're struggling with what is and what will be, if existential dread is pressing in on you, then what you should probably do is begin again. Start at the very beginning. In other words, some of us know so much that we can't see God because of the forest for the trees. In other words, we have to forget what we think we know so that we can experience the grace and mercy of God in a new and fresh way. Some of us grew up in a church that cultured and tailored their theology to a world that doesn't exist anymore. And so the theology that you're trying to implement today doesn't even fit what's happening. And you would say, well, isn't it old truth? Isn't it truth that's always? No, every church exists within the context of a specific culture. And so some of us have to unlearn what we think we know 
if we want to experience the grace and mercy of God in the world that we live in now. And that's exactly what Nicodemus needed. That's what he needed more than anything else. Maybe that's you. Maybe not. And then we see this one little interaction in John chapter 5. We don't have time to hit all of these, but this one is worth our attention. There's a, there's a man that Jesus interacts with who has been living beside this pool. If you know the story, it's a great story. It's one of my favorite stories in John. And it's uh, an incredible story because it has so many facets to it. And, and Jesus just meets this man. He's near a gate near, near the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus comes in, he sees this man. This man has been lame or invalid. He's been unable to walk for 38 years. And he's decided to make camp near this pool. Now, this pool has some lore that's associated with it. It's understood or at least expressed in history that this pool, uh, well, people who were lame and sick would lay all around it. And every once in a while, an angel of God would come down and stir the waters. This is the, the understanding of this pool. And that when the waters got stirred, the first one into the pool would be what? Can you imagine that that is actually true? Just for a moment, just play what if. I wouldn't even want to be near a God that would set up a circumstance like that. That there is a pool that lame and sick people sit near and every once in a while I'll send an angel down to it and create a mad dash by people who are lame and sick and the first one into the pool wins and they're healed. Can you imagine a God that would create a scenario like that? It sounds like the worst kind of lottery possible. But this man believes it. And Jesus sees him laying there by the pool. 38 years he's been invalid. We don't know how long he's been by the pool. I would say probably many years. And Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time. And he asked him this question. Here's the question. Let's say it together. You ready? Here we go. Would you like to get well? It's a great question. And some of you should wrestle with this question because you're stuck. You're stuck in a circumstance, and this is a valid question because everything about your choices in your life and the direction that you've headed down indicates that the answer to this question is, well, not really. Probably not. Because we're stuck. And this man was stuck. And what's interesting is, is this man responds to Jesus. Well, you know, when the water stirs, somebody elbows me and, you know, trips me or knocks me out of the way or knocks me off my mat. I can't get into the pool. Someone else gets in and they get healed. And I can't imagine that he's actually seen this. Maybe he saw something that he thought was that. But he gives a story and an excuse and maybe he doesn't know who he's talking to. I don't know. But this question is a question that we all ought to ask ourselves. Whatever circumstance you're in, a marriage that's broken, would you like for it to get better? A job that is a dead end, would you like a different path? A relationship that's toxic, would you like to figure it out and fix it? And so Jesus just looks at the man and says, let's say this together too, because some of us need to hear this. You ready? Let's say it. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. That's what he says. And he does. That's the whole healing. That's it. Now, when he does this, all kinds of things break loose. 
all kinds of discussions occur. People are confused. There's a big debate. And there's more to read to the story. It's well worth your time to dig into. It's a, a juicy part of the stake. But this is what Jesus says to him. And this is the very thing that some of us need to do. You know you need to make the phone call. You know you need to schedule the appointment. You know you need to have the conversation that you've been avoiding. You know you need to take the step in the direction that you need to take it in. You don't need advice. You don't need somebody to kick you down the path. You know what you need to do, and you need to do it. And I don't know what some of you are thinking. We have this man interacting with Jesus. Jesus was right there, and he healed him right there on the spot. I mean, he obviously he got healed. It wasn't a big trick he pulled. He got up from his mat, and he walked. If he had been able to walk, he'd have been walking already. But Jesus healed him. And Paul says over and over in the epistles that you and me have within us the power of the resurrection to do that very thing. That doesn't mean that you get healed in this way. What it does mean is that this man was stuck. And if you're stuck, it could be that this is a story that you need to dig into to shrink the gap between what is where I am today and what you know God can do in your own heart, relationships, your circumstances. And then in this section of chapters, starting with verse 3 and ending with 11, John decides to tell the story that is the showstopper of all stories. It's the story of Lazarus, his dear, dear friend Lazarus, and his good friends, Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. Now, Jesus is off doing ministry, and they send word to him that their brother is sick. And I, I think Jesus delays his trip uh, to their hometown of Bethany on purpose. We'll never know. It seems that that's the case. But So Jesus delays his journey to Bethany, and finally, by the time he's on his way, Lazarus has already died. Lazarus was sick, and he died. And Martha approaches Jesus on the road outside of town before he even gets to the town and certainly before he gets to the house. And he, she says to Jesus the thing that many of us, if we're dealing with any sort of existential dread, we need to be at least as honest and come to the table in the very same way that Martha did. She looks at Jesus and she says to him, I think probably pretty loudly and very passionately, probably through tears, if you had been here, he would not have died. God, if you had done your part, we wouldn't be dealing with this right now. The only reason we're facing the problems we're facing is because, God, you haven't taken care of your end of the bargain. I've showed up. I've done my part. I've given my money. I served my time. I've done my thing. How come you haven't done yours? When we said yes to walk down your path, it was assuming that you would make things work out, and they haven't worked out. Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then John, in incredibly poignant fashion, he speaks to existential dread more clearly and with incredible precision than anything else in Scripture. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? 
Jesus says this. While Martha's brother is wrapped in grave clothes and buried in a tomb. If you struggle with the distance between what is and what will be, then I can think of no more powerful moment in Scripture for you to read and ponder and consider through this Lent season than the story of Lazarus. I bet the issue you're facing right now, whether it's your concern for world affairs or something that's happening in your own home or your own relationship or of your own hopes and dreams for the days to come. My guess is, is that the existential dread or the, the tension that you feel between what is and what will be is the very place where God is going to grow your dependency and your surrender to him. Now, I can promise you this, the freedom that you want and the joy that you desire and the hope that you need for this week and days to come will be found in surrender to God and dependency on him. Jesus has the audacity to say to a woman who just buried her brother these words of hope and promise. And he doesn't just say them to her. He says them to you too. The thing that you think is dead probably isn't dead. The issue that you're facing, God is in the middle of it and he wants to meet you there. And God wants men and women who understand what is, not afraid to face it or name it. And they also understand the promise of what will be and they understand their calling is to shrink that gap with their words, their love, their mercy and their grace. May we not fight battles that are not meant to be fought. And may God use us to grow his kingdom in this way. And so, before we sing a few more lyrics that will help us point our hearts heavenward before we leave this place, why don't we spend some time praying for what's happening in our world today and ask God to intervene. I don't understand how intercessory prayer works, but I know this, that God has promised that when we pray he marshals the resources that we have, the resources of heaven, to answer those prayers. So why don't you bow your heads. Let me lead us in a prayer. Would you pray these things with us online and in this room? Lord, we recognize that the world is in a state of conflict and fear, territorial battles and unrest. We recognize that it's been decades since the world has faced circumstances that we're facing right now. Lord, we also declare that you are sovereign, that you are good. And that we believe that what will be is in your hands and that you will bring it to fruition in your time. But you've also called us to intercede. And in this intercessory prayer right now, as we 
as we pray on behalf of many, we recognize that you are the only one that can answer these prayers. So we pray for world leaders right now, those that are in positions of power and authority, wherever they are, that you would give them wisdom and humility, that you would allow them to set their egos aside. Or we believe that if you can raise the dead, that you can lead even a politician or leader to set their ego aside. We pray for hearts and minds that desire to benefit the whole of the world. Lord, it sure does seem like not everyone in these uh, uh, difficult days have been given light in life. But we declare that they were made in your image, broken for sure, sinful, absolutely, just like us. And so we pray for humble surrender to you and your ways and who you are. And in the absence of that, Lord, we pray that you would see that righteousness and justice flows like an ever-flowing stream from wherever it needs to. Lord, there are people who are in harm's way in this moment. They're searching for shelter and safety. They don't have the food they need or transportation or safe passage. They are fearful for their very lives. Or there's some in our church body here that have friends that are in harm's way at this moment in Ukraine. And so Lord, we pray that our prayers would find footing in the way that you answer them right now that you, Lord, would allow them to feel your sense of peace and safety, even in spite of the danger, or that you would protect those who are in harm's way from physical threat. Lord, we pray for those that are offering aid. You would allow the aid to get to the right places and the right people and that you would protect them from physical danger and harm. Lord, lastly, we pray for us. We recognize that we too live in this place at this time, and we desire to be instruments of your grace and mercy. And so, Lord, we can find ourselves focused on the things that don't matter, focused on preserving all manner of decisions and issues that that rise in us this existential dread and so Lord may we in conversations with others be instruments of grace and mercy love and peace encouragement and hope and we pray that as we do that this week that we would even in our own hearts, allow your spirit to shrink that gap of uncertainty and stress and tension. 
Lord, we ask for these things because we are fully dependent and we desire to be fully surrendered to you. We pray that this week as we live this out, the truths from scripture will ring deeply in our hearts and minds. So Lord, we as a family, we pray all of these things in the power and in the name of your son Jesus. And we all say together, amen.